All right. Uh, so, when will the world end? <laughs> there have been many predictions over the years. In the 1500s, a respected mathematician and astrologer predicted that a great flood would cover the entire earth. In fact, there was a German nobleman who built a three-story ark. But apparently, that astrologer hadn't read Genesis 9, where God promised never to send another global flood. In 1910, Halley's Comet was approaching the earth and caused worldwide panic, only to pass by without causing any problems. Y2K, anybody remember that? Late 90s, everybody was worried that when the clock turned to 1-1-2000, it would cause all sorts of chaos with technology, even causing some to remove their accounts and go to strictly cash. But that date came and went without much to do about nothing. The only thing significant that happened in 2000 was that I graduated from high school. So, 2012 marked the end of the Mayan calendar and led some to believe that the world would end in 2012. All that led to was a movie named 2012 that got a 39% on the Rotten Tomato meter. There have also been many Christians over the years that have predicted the date of the return of Jesus. In the second century, a man by the name of Montanus claimed that the Holy Spirit told him the second coming of Jesus was imminent. And so over a thousand people went to a plane in Turkey waiting for Christ to come. And he did not descend at that time. In the 1600s, because the Bible gives 666 as the number of the beast, in 1666, many thought, this is the year that the end times are coming. This is the year that everything is going to go down. And that year was the great fire in London, which led many people to believe this is the start of the tribulation. But at the end of the day, it was just a bad fire. In 1831, a religious leader named William Miller predicted that Christ would come in 1843, and over 100,000 people followed his teaching and waited for that day, and it came and went. In my parents' time, people like Harold Camping and Hal Lindsey and Jerry Falwell and Jack Van Impey and others predicted dates for Christ's return. When those dates came and went, just like Miller, they said, well, I did the math wrong, I need to recalculate. Kind of like the GPS, you know, when you go around recalculating, recalculating. Edgar Wisenant, I don't know if I pronounce his last name, wrote a book in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. It sold over 2 million copies. And then 88 passed. So he wrote a follow-up, 89 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1989. I don't know how long he could keep that going. I thought about today's sermon being called 23 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 2023. But I thought 23 was too long, and I realized it's 2024. So I scrapped that idea I decided instead to preach this sermon. But the question remains, when will Christ return? In Malachi, we talked a lot about the day of the Lord and about how Malachi had this prophecy about Jesus and how Jesus came and fulfilled many of the prophecies, but some of them were partially fulfilled and would one day be fulfilled when Christ returned. Before the sermon, we read Acts 1.11, but I want to go back a little bit and start in verse 6, Acts 1.6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? There are days where I feel pretty dense, and sometimes I ask stupid questions and I get frustrated, but it's a good reminder to me to listen to the density of the disciples sometimes. 
Jesus had told them multiple times, that's not why I'm coming. That's not what I'm accomplishing with this first advent. But again, they came to him and said, okay, how about now? Are you going to restore it now? Wait, is, is now the time they kept coming to Jesus saying, when are you going to do this? And he said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus told the disciples, it's not for you to know the date or the time. In Matthew 24, he stated even a little bit uh, more strongly. He said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now you may say, okay, if Jesus is omniscient, if he knows all things, how did he not even know the date of his return? Well, when Christ came to this earth, he, he purposely limited his powers, his omniscience. That's why when he was born, he had to be wrapped in a cloth and laid in a manger. That's why he needed to learn Hebrew and Greek as he grew up. That's why the scriptures say as he was growing up, he grew in wisdom and stature. And so there was this element during Jesus' time here on earth where he limited his omniscience. But I do believe in Acts, we see that after he rose from the dead, he rose in his glorified state. And he had full, he did not limit his access to all of his powers. And so <coughs> I actually think, I'm just speculating here, but I think at, after his resurrection, I think he did know the day or time because listen to what it says in Acts. Or, or listen, go back to Acts, go back a slide, sorry. Go back to one more, sorry. He said to them, it's not for you to know the dates the Father is set by his authority. So he limits it to them. But the point is, if, if they don't know, the disciples don't know, the angels don't know, and Jesus himself, when he was on earth, before his glorified state, didn't know, then <coughs> why would we be so audacious to say, Jesus is going to return on this particular date? But Jesus didn't end his statement by just saying, nobody knows, you know, live life, be well. No, he called them to action. In Acts 1, after saying that no one knows that he's not going to restore the kingdom of Israel this time, but he's going to come back, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. He said, you don't know when I'm coming, but I'm giving you a mission. I'm giving you something to do. Be my witnesses in your city, in the region, and to the very ends of the earth. We're not called to sit idly by and look up into the heavens. We're called to do, to be witnesses, to tell others about Jesus. So today, as we look at this topic, I just want to have the sermon be three simple points. Three simple points. First, Jesus will return. Second, he will Return at just the right time. And therefore, so we should live expectantly. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for a chance to open your word. I just pray that you'd speak through it. Lord, today there are many in this room that carry heavy burdens. As Mark shared, there are some that may be carrying financial burdens. We thank you for, for healing and restoring them for those there may be some coming with relational burdens, struggles. There may be some coming with physical burdens and ailments. In the midst of that, one truth can bring so much comfort that you will return. Lord, help us to live in that truth, to preach that truth to ourselves. 
to find hope in that truth. In your name we pray. Amen. So back to Acts 1. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now put yourself in the, in, in the disciples' shoes, right? So think of the loss and fear and everything they faced when Jesus died. Thinking all was lost, the kingdom's not coming, thinking everything that they had been pursuing was not going to be there. And then three days later, Christ returns. He raises from the dead. Think of the joy. Think of the excitement. And now they're thinking, now is going to be the time, right, Jesus? Now's the time you're going to establish. You just did something nobody has ever done. Nobody could do other than God. You rose yourself from the grave. This is the only possible thing. For 40 years, Jesus had been walking with them, showing proofs of who he was, teaching them. And for those 40 days, they're experiencing all this. And then, poof, he's gone. And they're just looking. Okay. You got to receive power by the Holy Spirit. Okay, got it. All right. You taught us what the Holy Spirit is. Okay. Uh, But you're there. I know you told us that, but now what? What would you do in that situation? I would look intently in the sky. I'd be like, okay, you just come and get a, come right back and listen to what the angel said to him. They were looking intently up in the sky and he, as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Another, whoa, okay, whoa, <laughs> where'd you come from? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus will return. See, in all of our arguing about the timing of Christ's return, we can't miss out on this one clear biblical fact. Jesus will return. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Jesus will return. He's going to come back. That means today, if your body is breaking down and you're struggling with all the ailments that may come back, Jesus will return. That means if right now your job is hard and you can't stand your coworkers, you can find hope that Jesus will return. That means if you're looking at all the wars, Russia and Ukraine and Hamas and Israel, you can say we can have hope because so often in our life we get so focused on what is right in front of us. We get worried and anxious and fearful and stressed. And sometimes we just have to remind ourselves That Jesus will return. That truth should be a soothing balm to our souls. Jesus will return. In seminary I had this class. And I don't know if you've ever gone to a Bible school or seminary, but when they do one class on the whole New Testament or the whole Old Testament, what happens is you get like a lot of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you, you get a lot of Acts, and then by the end you have to fly through the end of the New Testament. And so in this class, we had, by the end of the class, we had five minutes to cover Revelation. Good timing, Professor. Well, anyways, he chose some obscure passage in Revelation, I think took it out of context, and that was it. And uh, he no longer works at the seminary. But 
I was just like, if you're going to take five minutes on Revelation, there's like two truths I would want to walk with, walk away with. Five minutes on Revelation. One, Jesus is Lord. Two, Jesus will return. It's that simple. I mean, there's so much great truth in Revelation. It's one, it's one of the only books in the scriptures that pronounces a blessing on those that read it. But big picture. Jesus is Lord and glorious and he will return. Sometimes it's easy to get lost in the details, but I thank God, I thank God that even in the complexity of looking at all these things, I can hold on to that truth. Jesus will return. But with that in mind, we're going to dive a little bit into those complexities. So we're going to look at some of those things. We're going to look at all the different views on Revelation, and we're going to look at, at some of that stuff. And, and, uh, and when we do that, I want to give you just kind of a big picture of what everybody's talking about, but then we're going to come back and bring it back home. So first, when we talk about Revelation, we talk about this word rapture. Rapture is a Latin word meaning carrying off or, or transport or snatching away. It means that the, the dead in Christ and those who are alive will be caught up with God in heaven. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's look at that. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, 1 Thessalonians was written just 20 years after Christ ascended into heaven. And in those 20 years, Thessalonica had actually experienced a lot of persecution, and even had Christians martyred. Now they were waiting expectantly for Christ's return, and in the middle of that, their question was, what happens to the Christians that died? (laughs) There's all these Christians, people that came to know Christ, and then they were martyred, and Jesus has not come back. When Jesus comes back, what happens? And Paul says, look, we're going to still grieve, but we're going to grieve differently because we have hope. Every sermon I give at a funeral, I share this passage because as Christians, when we grieve, we have hope. Now, here's the thing. When someone we love passes, it's, it's so hard. It's, it's so difficult for us. But for those that know Christ, it's to their joy and blessing. So while we're here on earth and we mourn their loss and we miss them and we, we wish we had more time, they're in joy with Christ. The Bible says absent from the body and present with the Lord. But but the question of those in Thessalonica was, well, at Christ's return, what happens to them? Verse 14. Here's the foundation of our hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep in him. So fallen asleep means died. But I love this. The basis of our hope for the second advent, when Christ returns, is the first advent. We celebrated two weeks ago that at just the right time, Jesus was born. We looked at the cultural reasons, theological, political, all those different things, but it was the right time because it was God's time. But Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life. He died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And because of that first advent, we can have hope in the second advent, that when he returns, the dead in Christ will rise. Verse 15, according 
to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who's fallen asleep. So he's given an order. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's describing this rapture. First, the dead in Christ will rise. Now, we know from all of Scripture that the moment we die, our soul is with Jesus. So our bodies will be united with our souls. Now, this is a crazy thing to think about. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was in his glorified state. I don't know what my glorified state's going to be. I don't know if I'm going to have all my hair. I don't know if everybody in heaven's going to be bald because it's bald is beautiful. I don't know how it's all going to work. But somehow I'm going to be in this glorified state. And there's no worries. I think some Christians get all worried about, like, you know, can you do cremation? God can take all that and put you in a body. Cremation's completely fine. Some people worry, you know, if they're in the war in, in Germany and their foot's over in, like, Germany and their body's over here. How's God going to do that? God's going to take the foot, too, and connect it. I don't know how God works all that stuff. But we're going to have a glorified body. And so first, the dead in Christ arise. And then those who are here, when Christ comes back, those that are alive still, then will be caught up. But all this will happen in just a moment. And these encouraging words from verse 17, And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica, I know it's hard. I know you're worried. But be encouraged. Jesus will return. And for those that already died before Jesus' return, they'll be caught up in heaven. For those of you that are alive when Christ returns, you'll be caught up in heaven as well. 1 Corinthians 15 describes it this way. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's the perfect verse for a nursery taken way out of context but this means die so he says we will not all die that's not that's not a good verse for the nursery um but we will all be changed so for those that that died uh they will rapture up they will be changed for those that are alive they will also be changed in this new glorified body. When will it happen? Verse 52. In a, a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised to imperishable, and we will all be changed. So it will be this moment, this, this rapid event, and we'll have our glorified bodies. What a great truth. Jesus will return. Now, as we read the Bible, there are a lot of different opinions about when the rapture happens. And then there's this next thing called the millennium. And it's in the, the, the Revelation describes it. And I'm going to talk about different views. Now, these different views are called different millennial views. I'm not talking about adults that were born between in the 80s and 90s. Okay, I'm talking about different views on the millennium. But what is this millennium? Well, Revelation 20 describes it. And it talks about this a thousand years. He, God, seized Satan and bound him for a thousand years. God threw him into the abyss until the a thousand years ended. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the a thousand years 
had ended, and when the 1,000 years are over, and then God describes what happens. And if you can tell from my tone, I believe that a 1,000 years means a 1,000 years. Now, those that take it literally will point to Second Peter, where he says a day to the Lord is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years are like a day. And it is possible that it is figurative, but I've heard one person say, when you're reading stuff, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And I believe it makes sense that this is a literal a thousand years. But there are good, godly Christians who have different views on the millennium. So here's the three main views. First, the premillennial view. That's what I believe. Premillennial view believes that Jesus will come back before pre the millennial kingdom and then will reign for a literal 1,000 years. And during that 1,000 years, Christ will, return, will rule as king of Jerusalem. There will be peace, joy, and justice. Satan will be bound during that whole entire time. And after the 1,000 years, he'll be set free and he'll lead a rebellion against Jesus. And Jesus will thwart that and cast Satan forever into the lake of fire, which is hell. So that's the pre-millennial view that, that God will come before. Jesus will return before the millennium. The amillennial view believes that there is no literal thousand-year kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven exists right now in the hearts of believers, that it was enacted through his church. Since the gates of hell cannot prevail over the gospel, they say that Satan is now bound in certain ways. He's bound from preventing the spread of the gospel and the salvation of souls, and he is still active, but he is not able to do those things. So he's bound against those things. In the words of Augustine, the devil is bound throughout the whole period from the first coming of Christ to the end of the world, which will be the Christ's second, Christ's second coming. This does not mean the devil is incapable of enticing Christians away from Christ, but rather that he is not permitted to exert his whole power of temptation, either by force or by guile, to seduce people. So, millennials believe that one day at the end of the at the at, in the future Christ will return to establish the new the new heavens and the new earth but that's different from his millennial reign so they believe that we're in the millennial kingdom right now that we're currently in this kingdom now many godly christians believe this and i can see how they can get there from scriptures i still don't think it fits the scriptures best but i see how they get there the third view is post-millennialism. Uh, they believe that the binding of Satan takes place through the advance of the gospel. And their belief is that at some point, uh, the world will become more and more Christian until there's this point where, where the world is predominantly Christian and this golden age comes about because of this. And that golden age could last a literal 1,000 years or it could last just a long period of time. At the end of that time, Satan will lead a rebellion and Christ will return to the earth to, to squash the rebellion. Now, uh, I personally, with this view, I just don't see it. I don't see how you can get there from the scriptures. Uh, I, I'm a of you. I totally see how they get there. This view, I don't really see it. And, and also from personal experience, I don't really see the world getting better and better and more and more Christian. I, I just personal experience have not witnessed that. So in overview, premillennial, the thousand year reign is literal. Christ will return before the millennium. And the millennium is this reign of Christ. Amillennial, the thousand year reign is figurative. And we're in the millennium right now. And Christ will return to establish the new heavens and the new earth. 
post-millennial is there's going to there's gonna be a millennium that will happen through the church, and Christ will return after that. Okay, everybody got it? <laughs> Maybe. All right. Sweet. Back to the rapture. So we are a premillennial church, which means we believe that Christ is going to come back before the literal 1,000-year reign on earth. But before that happens, the Bible teaches there's going to be this period called the tribulation. Uh, there's going to be seven years of escalating uh, stuff going on. And the first period is about three and a half, and then another three and a half years. The last three and a half is called the Great Tribulation. That's where things escalate sincerely. And even among premillennialists, there's different views about when the rapture will happen. So the first view is the pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus will rapture his church before the tribulation. So Christ will come, the dead in Christ will rise, those who are alive in Christ will be caught up with God in heaven before, and that will institute, start the, the, the years of tribulation. So before, that's uh, my position. Mid-tribulation rapture is that God will rapture the church at some point during the tribulation. There's different views on that. There's a one that at the three-and-a-half-year mark, that's when it's going to happen. There's a view called the pre-wrath uh, view. It's in Revelation 6.19 is when God pours out his wrath. So people from that view think that that's the, the church is going to be raptured before God pours out his wrath. And the last one is the post-tribulation rapture. And they, they believe that Jesus will rapture the church after the tribulation. And they believe the rapture and the second coming are one event. Okay? So we have two different things. Rapture, second coming. Pre-trib, rapture is going to happen. Then the tribulation, second coming is going to happen at the end. Mid-trib, rapture is going to happen during the tribulation. Second coming is at the end. Post-trib, rapture, second coming, one event. We're caught up with God and caught up in heaven with God. Then we come back to reign with him on the millennium. Okay, everybody got it? All right. If you don't have it, uh, I want to suggest a resource, gotquestions.org. Fantastic resource. Um, So far, as of Friday, they've answered 750,434 questions about God, Jesus, the Bible, or theology. So you have a question about anything, really, you you can go to it. I've been using it for 15 years, found it to be a great resource. And in the, studying this, I found out they're also pre-trib, pre-millennial, which is my position. So I was like, oh, another notch on the thing. But they do present the other views uh, very fairly, and they show how different Christians view things and why they view those things. So uh, a great resource. But moving on, uh, each view has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, when I was... Uh, writing my ordination paper. I sent out my ordination paper to a lot of different people before my ordination to get feedback. And one of the things I wrote is that I humbly hold to a pre-trib, pre-millennial view. And one of the feedbacks I got was someone said, why do you say humbly hold? Why don't you just say I hold to this? I said, well, because all these other positions I hold with certainty. And this one, I'm like 51% sure it's pre-trib, pre-millennial. <laughs> like, I... When I read the scriptures, this makes the most sense, but it has holes. And the other positions have holes, and I think it has the least amount of holes. When I read the scriptures, the pre-trib, pre-millennial view makes the most sense of the scriptures that I'm reading. I heard a new version this, this week. It was called pan-trib. And the thought is, since God is sovereign and knows all things, I trust him, and it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> but the overall truth... <clears throat> 
Like we get stuck in all these details when we argue, was it pre-trib, was it mid-trib, was it post-trib? You know, when is it going to happen? The point is, Jesus will return. Jesus will return. If you're at North Park, you're like, well, okay, pastors, pre-trib, pre-millennial. I, I think it's post-trib. You could still be a member at North Park. This is our statement on the end times at North Park. We believe in the bodily resurrection, the ascension, the high priesthood, the second coming, the resurrection of the righteous and the dead, the change of the living in Christ, on the, that Jesus will reign on the throne of David and his reign on earth. We believe clearly what the Bible clearly teaches. So let's get back to the sermon. Jesus will return. That's the big takeaway. Not only will he return, he will return at just the right time. I don't know what year it will be. (laughs) I don't know when it's going to come. In fact, none of us are able to know that fact. But I do know this. When he comes, it will be just the right time. Why? Because it's God's timing. We've learned from this series is that God's timing is best. God's timing is always best. Three, so we should live expectantly. Matthew 24, after Jesus talked about the rapture, he says this, Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. None of us can know. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming. Now earlier he had said he would come like a thief in the night. If the owner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So he's saying... Look, you're not going to know when this is coming, but if you know I am coming, what does he say next? So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. And then he gives a number of parables. He gives the parable of the wicked servant. He gives the parable of the ten virgins. Five are ready, five are not ready. Five are not waiting, five are not expecting and he gives a parable of the bags of gold. Paul, talking about the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor of, in the Lord is not in vain. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus will return. And will return at just the right time, so we need to live expectantly i'm going to end the sermon with two questions two simple questions first how do we respond to current events over the course of 2000 years things have happened that have caused people to go oh this is this might be it oh this is probably it no this is it and time and time again as we have watched history unfold there have been things that have lined up in some way with the description of Revelation. And we could find ourselves doing that same thing. You know, when we see the war in Russia, or more importantly, the war in Israel, we can look to those things and say, this might be it. And it could be. Or it could not be. Either is possible. And we can get so caught up in looking at that stuff that we can miss the big picture that Jesus will return. 
Virgil Bopp uh, was a great member at North Park, a retired pastor, tremendous teacher, a blessing to our church. And uh, I'm not sure which one of the people in his class gave me this, but one of the lessons, it just says, Jesus is coming perhaps today. And uh, I, someone in the church gave me this, and I put it in my office. It sits on my bookshelf facing me, and it's a good reminder. I don't know if everything's going to escalate in Israel right now to the point where we're in the end times or if it's going to subside and not be. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know that Jesus is going to return, and it could be today. We don't know if it's today. We don't know if it's tomorrow. We don't know when it will be. So as the world uh, events unfold, we can't know for certain, but we can know something for certain, that Jesus will return, and it could be today. So the second question is, how do we live? If Jesus could return today, should that cause us to live differently? Should that cause us to do something? And I think it does. And first is expectantly. Jesus says you have to be ready. He says, I'm coming back. So we should live with that expectation that he will return. The second thing is purposely, with purpose. In the way Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. That because he is coming back, we have a purpose. Because he is returning, we have something to do. Third, with hope. Paul writes, we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. We have hope. So we respond to life events. We respond to the hardships. We respond to all these things with hope. Then he says, as witnesses. Acts 1, before he says, I'm, I'm going away, after he says, I'm going away, but you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, he told the disciples this. We respond by being disciples. Go, therefore, and be, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always. If I were to summarize those things, I'd use our mission statement. We're called to be disciples who make disciples, 